thanks for for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I, I see you've been hanging out a lot with uh, Marco Papich, uh, affectionately known as Cousin Marco in my neck of the woods. Not that we're actually cousins, but uh, brothers from another mother, if you will. So nice to be another geopolitical analyst on your radar. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're doing, uh, for, for, for your listeners, uh, today is September the 8th, and we're doing a sort of roundtable discussion with him in two weeks' time here. Uh, so definitely sign up for that. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be a rip-roaring good time. Usually when I talk to Marco, I'm, I'm the sober one to his hot takes, so I'll try to bring some of the hot takes myself here. Um, but I think that's a good, as good a place to start as any, uh, because I'm coming at this from a, from a geopolitical perspective, and we're trying to focus on the intersection between geopolitics and commodities. And, and the first question I wanted to pose to you was just, um, do you feel like, how do you, how do you integrate geopolitics into thinking about commodities? I have the sense in the space having worked in it for over 10 years now, that some folks have been thinking about it very, very closely for decades. If you go to a Chevron or the big multinational, they have entire departments that think about nothing but geopolitics because they're very familiar with risk. You start talking about you know, copper or lithium or some of these other things though, it's, it's almost like a, what geopolitics can affect my bottom line? Agricultural commodities come into this too. So how, how did geopolitics come on your radar and how do you metabolize those risks as, as it comes to commodities trades? Sure. So, look, I, I think that from a geopolitical perspective, the resource markets today are probably more <clears throat> involved in geopolitics than they have been in the 17 years that I've been doing this. Um, and we could talk about, obviously, the reasons why. And, and it, of course, has to do with the balkanization of um, groups, and particularly all of which are very resource um, big resource producers, right? So, so we're effectively are seeing in some ways the potential of going back to have redundancies of supply chain and talking about where your materials are coming from, where for the last 25 years we've moved decidedly in the other direction. And if you want to talk about globalization, there's really no industry that became more globalized than the resource market, right? You know, nobody really cared where anything came from. Um, so I think that's definitely the pendulum is certainly swinging in the other direction. You know, I, I would lie to you if I said that geopolitics is at the center of the analysis that we're doing. And instead, what we actually try to focus mostly on is, is geology and uh, resource endowment and trends um, in the capital spending and things of that nature and, and trends in demand. Um, and, and geopolitics up until the last couple of years has really been a question of make sure you don't get the asset expropriated. You know, to the extent that geopolitics plays into it, it's make sure that you don't have a regime change where all of a sudden they're going to rejigger the royalties or the taxes or just have the asset outright expropriated. But today I think things are really different. And today I think we're, we're seeing a little bit of, of this idea of, you know, where is your gas coming from? Where uh, is your uh, nickel coming from? PGMs, you know, we have a major... Uh, imbalance there in terms of you know Russia's um, accounting for huge amounts of the PGM complex, and frankly, where we see it honestly more than anywhere um, in terms of uh, a disproportionate amount of uh, involvement in, in, in Russia is in uranium uh, enrichment and fuel fabrication. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, people talk about how Russia has Europe over a barrel with gas. I mean, Russia has Europe over a barrel with, with uranium enrichment. Uh, there's nowhere else to do that. That industry has been completely decimated. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's becoming really, really important. And I think it's very uh, bullish, unfortunately. It's sort of sadly bullish, you know, um, but, but it's definitely um, geopolitics are more at the fore now since any time, probably since I would say 2003 when, you know, the U.S. Uh, went, went, went into Iraq. And then obviously uh, that had major impacts for, for crude markets. But there's really never been a time s since then that the geopolitics has played such a central role. Yeah, and, and the difference there is that was really specifically oil, whereas you know now it seems to just be an entire macro force that is affecting the entire commodity space. And, and that's, I think that's a good place to dwell a little bit, because if you had gone to somebody like me in the late 1990s and you'd asked me to give a presentation on geopolitical risk, probably the first chart I would have thrown up on the board would have been uh, U.S. oil imports from the Middle East and from other countries and all the things the U.S. was doing to source LNG from abroad and, and things like that. And the extent to which the shale revolution completely turned that on its head and turned the United States into a net 
energy exporter. Um, and I, but I know that the sort of I'm teeing you up here for, for one of your greatest hits, which is that that can't continue indefinitely. It's amazing how fast the United States took for granted. Oh, we're, we're an energy superpower again. But I know that you guys think that, uh, well, that, that that trend is probably long in the tooth at this point. No, that, that, that's right. You know, the shale revolution in the United States was really dramatic, both on the oil side and on the gas side. And <clears throat> I forgive people for thinking that immense is the same as infinite, but of course it's not. And, and the shale revolution was immense. You know, the, on the liquid side of things, you brought on 10 million barrels a day in a decade. That's as much as Saudi Arabia produces. On the gas side, you brought on basically, you know, 90 Bs, uh, which is over 10 BCF a day, uh, 10 million barrels of oil equivalent, if you convert from gas back into oil equivalent. And so it's as though you brought online two new Saudi Arabias in the same country in the same decade. And I joked with somebody that if you go back and you read the Saudi history books in the 1950s, uh, or the, the history books that talk about the 1950s, I promise you that oil features quite prominently in those chapters. Whereas if you ask the average uh, investor, or certainly God student, you know, what, were, what, what was a, a defining moment of the 2010s in the United States, no one would talk about the shale revolution. And if anything, if you say, well, what about those guys? They say, well, they were huge value destroyers. That might be the only mention that they get, or they were a function of cheap interest rates. Whereas, you know, what has happened has been dramatic. We went from being the world's <clears throat> largest importer to a you know, net exporter briefly. Uh, in LNG and natural gas, we went from importing um, we exported a tiny bit out of Alaska, but basically being net importers of natural gas to the largest exporters in the world. You know, we surpassed Qatar and Australia. That was never supposed to happen. You know, the Australian LNG development, you saw that coming 10, 20 years in the making. And in the case of the U.S., I mean, that was spun up almost, you know, proverbially overnight. So these huge shifts, these huge changes of both capital flows, of energy flows, um, made people basically think that it was almost infinite. And, and something added to that, you know, there's been a couple periods of major energy price pullbacks in the last 15 years. And <clears throat> with that, drilling activity slowed a lot. And oftentimes, productivity rose faster than the drilling slowed. So it was this weird thing where, like, the energy price would fall, people stopped drilling wells, and you grew even more than before. And I think that kind of added to this almost mythical, you know, cold fusion type of a feeling where it's like we just have this endless uh, bounty of energy. But of course, that, that's not the case. It was just a very large field subject to depletion, just as any other. And we're now starting to see that where, you know, basically every gas field that's out there uh, is basically in decline, except the Haynesville's growing a little bit. That's going to stop in the next month or two. The Marcellus has been flat. Um, you know, the Barnett, the Fayetteville, those have been declining for years. Uh, the Barnett, and on the um, on the oil side, it's very similar. Now the Eagleford and the Bakken have both gone into retreat; they're falling quite sharply. And um, in the Permian, we think that the Permian has the potential of actually rolling over in the next in the next year or so. So you know, things are changing awfully quickly. <clears throat> um, this period of unusual energy abundance and energy security and 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 low energy prices is probably behind us. Uh, and I think that, that we have to rewrite a lot of what we think we know uh, for the 10 years coming up, which will be largely dominated by shortages. Yeah, I, I want to dwell on the, the, the supply situation from a global, global perspective in a second. But before we leave the United States, you know, if we go back in U.S. history, the United States was a major energy producer in the 50s and the 60s. Before Saudi Arabia, the United States was Saudi Arabia. The, the blueprint for OPEC is an American blueprint. It's a very American organization based on the Texas Railroad Commission in some ways. Um, and when that began to flip and when all of a sudden the mighty Texas warrior couldn't keep up uh, with U.S. demand, the United States just said, OK, we're not exporting oil anymore. And the question that I'm leading up to is, okay, let's say, let's say, yeah, all those things happen. We go into decline in these gas fields and these oil fields and things like that. Can the United States still produce enough just for a self-sufficiency basis? Because one of the problems right now is that the United States is exporting abroad and it's promising Europe, we're going to keep you warm in the winter. And hey, we want to sell to Asia and everybody else. Could you see a point at which a White House, whether it's a Democrat or Republican White House, says, you know what, those laws about energy security from the 1970s that we had with oil, those are going to come back and we're going to have to need some new laws with natural gas so that that sort of convergence of prices from a U.S. perspective doesn't happen because they're keeping it internal. I wonder what you think about that political scenario. 
Absolutely. And <clears throat> I think the only question is whether the convergence happens and that's what forces the policies or whether mm -hmm. the policies preempt the convergence from happening. And I would suspect what would probably happen, um, you know, and obviously I, my crystal ball is only as good as, as the next guy's, but <clears throat> I would suspect that what you'll probably have is um, an unexpected surge in prices in the U.S. on natural gas. At that, and that forces the administration's hand to ultimately limit exports. And I think, not only do I think that that's possible, I think that's likely. Um, you know, I, I don't think that in the U.S. we can see our natural gas bills go up fivefold without some type of a reaction from um, the administration, which of course is, it will be, you know, ironic given the administration has continuously liquidated all of our strategic petroleum reserves on the oil side and liquid side of things, and then we'll be forced to limit exports on the gas side of things. But, you know, crazy things happen, and I think for sure that that's going to happen. Because <clears throat> remember that, you know, right now natural gas in the United States, you know, in, with a two-handle, is by far the cheapest molecule of energy on planet Earth by like 75%. And, and, and that's very un, unsustainable is not the right word because I guess you can sustain it, but to have such a large economy that has such an unbelievable energy price advantage that no one really seems to be aware of, like, you know, no one really appreciates that when they go and heat their homes through this winter or, or when they go and, you know, get their power bill, they're, they're taking advantage of some of the cheapest or the cheapest energy on the planet by a wide, wide, wide margin. And, you know, gas prices hit the consumer really hard. And, and we saw that last summer when oil spiked through 100 and refinery outages meant that, that downstream product prices you know, reacted even more. Um, but when, when you have difficulty powering your home and heating your home, I feel that that hits really much more personally. That, that feels, you know, the consumer feels much more vulnerable to that. And you know, the idea that you could see your household electricity bill double, triple, or quadruple uh, over time, I think is, is really going to be difficult for people to understand. But the question is, how can you persist in a market where you have one form of energy that's 90% cheaper than everywhere else, 70% cheaper than everywhere else? And, and over the long term, you can't, but, but people will definitely try, and limited exports is, is a really, really easy way to do that, and I think it'll be a big win um, albeit, albeit the wrong decision, but I think that you know it'll, it would be a big vote getter the day that it happens for sure, uh, and so it's almost guarantees that it will happen. Now the question is, I don't see that happening without a price spike in the commodity first. I don't see that happening as part of a well thought out you know future energy policy. I see it being reactionary because um, we're building another you know six Bs of, of LNG export coming on in the next you know 24 months and we have no idea where we're going to source the gas to get it so then gas prices will spike and then and then people will come in and ban exports like what good does that do yeah I mean, the United States has many virtues but well thought out long-term thinking policies is not one of them uh, democracy doesn't normally lend itself to that and I would just add to what you said you you were talking about heating houses I'm I'm here in New Orleans based in New Orleans and for us it's cooling houses and we've already had the 3x 4x over the really really hot summer but the other thing that I can say from sitting here in the Gulf is that um, the amount of export capacity that's coming online here in just the it's next huge. two years is absolutely massive and if we're right like let's say you know it doesn't matter what scenario it is let's say it spikes let's say the white house intervenes or congress intervenes and you restrict exports all of that export who's holding the bag for all that export capacity because it sure looks to me like the energy companies just think they're going to go sell you know natural gas to heat french homes in perpetuity and i can't imagine that that's going to happen with the american consumer once they figure out that they're paying to heat france or other places across the world no, absolutely. And, and now look, I mean, ultimately, right, you know, energy is so fundamental to uh, the economy. And, and in a lot of ways, I actually think that most of our measures for the economy, like GDP and, and what have you, are really just proxies for energy and energy transformation in its different forms. And so, you know, ultimately, over the really long term here, right, if you were to limit LNG exports, just, oh, you would obviously have a massive write-off of capital for all those facilities, but then what you'd have is you know various manufacturing or various you know whether it's you know natural gas-based fertilizers or uh, petrochemicals or whatever, and you'd you'd export it. So I mean that you know ultimately energy is is is, is globally fungible, and we're going to find ways. You can't have 
one form of energy 75% cheaper than the rest of the world. Um, you know, both gas relative to oil here in this country and then gas relative to gas uh, everywhere else in the world. And, and so there's going to be just an unbelievable pressure uh, to take advantage of that cheap feedstock gas. And right now it's LNG exports. Yeah, although I, I do think we're moving towards, because that's true, especially in today's economy, where a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil everywhere in the world. Like, yes, there's crude and West Texas Intermediate, but everybody uses oil in the same sort of way. If, if you extrapolate out sort of, let's say, 10 years from now, getting really, really macro, you know, look at China and the renewables and the nuclear and the small modular reactors they're bringing online versus, say, Europe. Let's say they really go all in on hydrogen. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's the most likely possibility, but they talk about it plenty. Can you imagine a world in which we are balkanized into literally different energy infrastructures? Or do you think that's just a bridge too far and that ultimately, if there's that U.S. natural gas that is 90 percent cheaper than everything else, like it will get to markets one way or another? Yeah, I, I think I do think the latter, and I, and I think ultimately what what will drive things is this concept of energy return on investment or EROI. So you know every form of energy produces usable energy and consumes energy to make that usable energy, and and presumably there's an important relationship between how much energy goes in and how much energy comes out, and we call that the EROI. You know we didn't invent the term. Um, Charles Hall uh, at the University of Syracuse invented the term. Uh, but lots of people have sort of run with it. We've done quite a bit of work looking at different sources of energy based on their energy return on investment. And I think that over the long term, in an energy-constrained world, you'll gravitate towards the most efficient forms of, of energy, uh, the, those with the highest EROI. And in the last 10 years, we've moved away from that towards renewables, uh, which are which are very, very low EROI just because they require so much material to build the things. Um, and so much re redundancy um, as well. And so what you can do that when you have excess energy available to, to, to squander, I guess. You know, maybe that's too strong of a word. Uh, but as you go into an er a time when, when energy is near and dear again, you'll have to gravitate towards the most efficient sources. So I think that to the extent that we can get our hands around nuclear, um, that's far and away the most efficient source of energy uh, known to man. And I think that that, you know, if the end of this entire decade or 20 years of renewables is that we all end up with nuclear power, then we'll be much better off as a planet for the whole thing. Uh, so I think that if we could get our arms around that, that could displace everything. And I think some countries will get there faster than others. Uh, but otherwise, I think it'll be, you know, natural gas, which is very efficient, and coal, which is just as efficient as natural gas, but has twice the CO2. So I think it'd be great if we could get away from coal as quickly as we could and go to gas, no efficiency loss, and lots of CO2 savings. Uh, but we haven't really invested enough in the gas infrastructure upstream, I think, to provide that. So we'll have to see. I don't, but I don't think it'll be every country doing different things, because I think the country that adopts hydrogen and the country that adopts renewables will very, very, very quickly realize the difficulties there and you're seeing it already you know i mean you look at you know orsted was down what 50 percent in the last two weeks because of these massive write-offs on their wind projects in the u.s they're basically abandoning them um you know the uk just did an offshore wind auction that didn't solicit a single bid um and, and i gotta tell you hydrogen is much much less efficient than straight up wind and solar. So, you know, if those aren't going to work, hydrogen's never going to work. So, so I think eventually the, the physics of it will come to the fore. Does that mean you might have, you know, gas, coal, nuclear, all kind of vying for, yeah, that's possible. But I think a lot of this other stuff's going to go by the wayside. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir on, on nuclear, and uh, I was, I'm based in New Orleans, born in the state of Georgia. I've been following the development of that nuclear reactor there. I think it was, what, uh, like double the budget and, and 10 years yeah. late or something like that? So I don't think yep. it's the United States that it's, that is going to be at the front of that, that race, unfortunately. It, it's interesting. You know, I just had a conversation with somebody this morning. You know, the um, NRC, which is the Nuclear, nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States. They're the ones that are tasked with approving new nuclear reactor designs. And the NRC is a little bit like the FAA. I'm sure if there's real policy wonks on your call, they might get upset with me or something because I'm sure there's lots of differences. But why I say they're similar is in the same way as the FAA approves a new Boeing and then everyone around the world kind of uses the FAA approval as their own. You know, they don't necessarily have their own internal aviation agency that runs through the same level of 
uh, due diligence. It's the same in the nuclear world. You know, the, the NRC typically has approved reactor designs, and many countries will then accept that NRC approval to, to allow for, for the same reactor to be built in their country. And so it's a big deal. It's important. Um, it, it's, it's a major soft power that remains for the U.S., right, in the same way that the uh, FAA is, was, you know, it's kind of shifting a little bit. Um, and, and they have several new small modular reactor designs basically on their desk. Um, there's only one that's kind of gone through on, a, on, on what I would call a materially different new design, um, and that was that Akla reactor last mm -hmm. year, and, mm -hmm. and they turned that one down. You know, so everyone's talking about the NRC being this pro-nuclear group now for the first time. For a long time, it was basically an agency filled with people that really wanted to see the nuclear industry in the U.S. shut down. That's now changed, according to insiders. But we'll have to wait and see. You know, it, it, the U.S. could be on, on the verge of uh, on the forefront of this, um, or, 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 or we could not be and pass that baton on to somebody else. It really depends on, frankly, a few decisions over the next four or five years. Well, and it goes down to whether you want to be cutting edge or whether you just want to put up reactors, because the countries that are building reactors are India and China, and they're the ones that are going to have new capacity online. But when you start talking about, well, who's going to get to fusion first and all the materials that have to go into a fusion reaction, you know, that is still the province of the United States, I think. Absolutely. And, and fusion, for, for the record, we're not big believers in fusion. I think that's just so complicated. And I think the problem with fusion is that sometimes it can lead the discussion away from, you know, really safe, high quality fission and, and mm -hmm. new reactor designs there. Um, and in fact, you know, we, we've tried to make some investments with, with some of our partners and investors and stuff. And they're like, ah, you know, that the, the, this advanced fission small modular reactors kind of sits in this notch between where we are today and fusion, which we ultimately think is here. And you're like, guys, I think it's a problem because I don't know that fusion is there. And I think we risk missing that middle part of really good high quality opportunities. Uh, but no, you're absolutely right. You know, as of right now, you know, China can build the equivalent of AP1000s, whatever they call it, you know, the stolen, their, their stolen version of the AP1000. And the Koreans are, can do it as well uh, on time, on budget. The United States, cannot and um you know just as a, as a recap for your listeners in case they're they're unaware you know that vogel facility was basically done uh on a on a um turnkey contract basis with westinghouse toshiba where you know westinghouse assumed the price risk uh, or, or the capex overruns um and that project ballooned and not only did they have to eat that cost but it ultimately bankrupted them um, and so, you know, we don't really, for all intents and purposes, have a, you know, nuclear engineering industry in the United States, including we don't have people that can weld these things. You yeah. know, this is 2023. We've been welding for a long time. I'm not sure why we can't find welders, but we can't. Well, but I mean, that's true across the board. It's the same way we're talking about 5G and literally zero of the radios that go into, you know, 5G telecoms are made in the United States. It's all Korea or Taiwan or Japan or things like that. Um, I was talking to a guy who's, who's in a mining startup. They're looking for PGMs and things like that in weird parts of the United States. And his point was mining tech in the United States is if, it's as if you put pause, you pressed pause like the day that China entered the WTO. Like we have 30 years of mining technology and expertise that we have to hurry up and do before we can even think about doing sort of, you know, domestic mining in the United States from that perspective. Totally. So, well, I mean, you know, and, and, and there at least it's not, you know, there I think it's that that's global. You know, the mining industry in general is just, is shocking and it's funny it's maybe you have a bug in our office because we were talking about this this morning too uh, about how you know if you look at the oil industry you know the oil and part of it is that the oil industry recycles capital and generates free yeah. cash a lot faster and a lot more proficiently and you know it, it's an order of magnitude larger industry uh, but you know if you go to like the uh, exploration and development, you know, departments at Exxon, Chevron, Pioneer, whatever, you know, this is as sophisticated as it gets. This is like the most sophisticated materials handling, the most sophisticated material sciences, uh, geophysics, AI. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's it's really unbelievably remarkable. Um, and, and I'm going to upset all my mining buddies. But, you know, mining geology and exploration is basically some grad student with a grab bag and a hammer walking around chipping off. We say, oh, that rock's a little different color than the other rock. Let's let's go test it out. And, you know, there's definitely people doing things 
differently and at the forefront now, but not much. Um, you know, 99% of the industry is still that guy with the rock hammer uh, chipping away at the turquoise colored rocks that, that he or she hopes to find. So I don't know. Is that, is that bullish or bearish or just shocking? I don't know. But, but that's the state of that industry. I, I think you're lucky if the guy with the with the little hammer has a graduate degree. In my experience, it's more just wildcatters who are running around, you know, selling snake oil and trying to convince you, oh, this is the big discovery. Uh, this is the thing. Uh, I don't want to get too far down this tangent, but before we sort of Cynic. zoom out, yeah. But before we <laughs> but before we leave this topic and get a little more global, um, you sort of mentioned it when you talked about the the relationship between fission and fusion, and I've had this relationship too, and we've done some research at my own firm about this, about somehow fusion. It, it has it has the gleam of new or of tech or of say I, I don't know like in the same way that AI and crypto had their little moments in the sun it feels like fusion has a moment in the sun too whereas the things that actually work that are safe and clean like fission no uh, it's the same thing with coal and natural gas like you put both in the same bucket even though if the United States tomorrow stopped using all coal and went only to natural gas I mean we would probably make a lot of the emissions quotas very happy so the I'm going to ask you an impossible question but I just wonder from from a psychological perspective, what you th what do you think is happening in the United States? Like, why can't the, the United States figure out, like, no, 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 like, fission's good. Uh, and fusion, sure, great. If you can discover the Holy Grail, that'd be nice, too. But right now, we have fission. Same thing with coal, natural gas. Coal, yes, bad. Natural gas, better. Why can't, like, what, what is the psychological gap here that is preventing the United States from advancing from that perspective? Well, it's difficult to say for certain. I, I think what it is... And I'll pose your question a little bit differently, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the things that people ask when we talk about some of the limitations and shortfalls of wind and solar and electric vehicles, the, the, the gist of the question that we get most often is, how can that be? How can we have gone so far down the wrong path, mm -hmm. right? You know, if that's really true, then why is pick your person, investing hundreds of billions of dollars and rolling this stuff out, and why aren't we seeing any negative consequence? And the answer to all of that has been cheap money and cheap energy. And I think that that's a big part of the distortions uh, of this last 10 years. You know, I think that people understand, or some people understand, how cheap money distorts capital flows. And there's a very similar phenomenon with energy flows. When energy becomes what I would call uh, you know, unsustainably or overly inexpensive, uh, you create, you change behaviors. And what you do is you end up basically foregoing the idea of energy efficiency because it doesn't really matter. You know, who cares if it's energy efficient? It's sort of like when water is free, um, you know, who cares if you're, if, if you're you know, using too much water in your process? It just doesn't, simply doesn't matter. And, and so I think that that's now beginning to change. And with that, I think we'll have to be, and you're already seeing, a, a more comprehensive study of the issues at hand, right? I mean, I think the engineers out there can understand it, but the truth is it doesn't matter. You know, the truth is if you spin up a massive onshore or offshore wind farm when that has an energy return on investment of six to one versus 30 to one for a gas plant, when you're steeped in excess energy and your cost of capital is zero and it's effectively limitless, you can do that. And it doesn't actually have much of an impact. It doesn't really matter. Now, of course it matters in the big picture, but it doesn't really matter the day you do it. And I think that's the world we've been in. And you know, I think we had the opportunity to come to our senses and adopt more sensible policies, both on the interest rate capital side of things as well as on the energy side of things, and we didn't. So now probably we're gonna to have to get hit over the head with it a little bit in the form of energy insecurity in one way or another. Maybe it's the threat of energy insecurity or maybe it actually happens. You know, there's talk now of um, Texas grid instability again next week, California certainly, and the list goes on and on. And um, you know, I presume that that's, what, that's gonna sort of force us back into a more honest and frank discussion, uh, the same way that you know higher cost of capital, you know, brings about a lot of pain, but ultimately kind of focuses, sharpens people's pencils and, on the investment side. I think I think that's what it'll be, and, and fusion is the perfect example of that because if you really study fusion, and and maybe that's beyond the scope and, and, and duration of this of this podcast today, but if you really study fusion, it is 
so difficult and you are so far away. And when they talk about this big Q rating of greater than one that happened at the end of last year that was supposed to revolutionize everything, they neglected to talk about all the power to energy required to power the laser in the first place. And it happened once and you need 100,000 a day. You know, all these different, it is so fiendishly difficult. But when you're funding it with zero cost of capital and it does have this sort of gleam and shine of new, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 50 years in the future because that might as well be today. Uh, and, and the hope is that, you know, it's limitless energy or whatever, but, but it just, it's just too complicated. And, and I, I really worry for, the, for, for, for that. I take it from that answer that you don't think that the price of capital is going to go down anytime soon. <sighs> Look, I, I probably, you could have asked me at most points in the last 10 years whether I thought the cost of capital was too cheap and whether you know I thought it would go higher and my answer would have been yes so it certainly can go down I've been proven wrong a lot the same way like many of the you know more I don't, I don't want to say hard money but you know people that believe in a true cost of capital and people that believe that the price level is now distorting things uh, and resulting in malinvestment and people that believe in bubbles and what have you, the Jim Grant devotees of the world have been proven wrong a lot, but I think ultimately that, that I still do believe that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I suspect that what we're going to see here uh, is probably another bout of inflation. Uh, you know, we had a massive, obviously massive raise in interest rates in the last 12 months. It, it took out a couple banks, but by and large, you know, we've adapted to it. I don't think that's really possible. You know, I don't think you can go through a 10-year stretch where you take the monetary base from sub a trillion to almost 10 trillion, where you keep the cost of capital at zero, where you have huge investment booms one after the other after the other, and then you raise 500 basis points and Silicon Valley Bank goes out of business and you backstop the depositors and that's the end of that. I mean, it strikes me like there's something out lurking out there and now inflation's probably going to come back a little bit if material prices stay high. So I think everyone's in a tough spot. And, you know, back in April of this year, and we're in September, it's not, not, not that long ago, back in April, Bloomberg had 97% survey poll that uh, with 97% agreeing we would be in severe recession by July. Of course, that never came to pass. And now that same survey says with a 97% confidence or 97% of the respondents say that um, we've thread the needle and there'll be no recession and no inflation and this is the soft landing and now it's on, on to the next bull market. So, I mean, you know, that, that, wor that definitely worries me because I don't think that's true. <laughs> No, and, and I mean, that's true in, in sort of natural gas, too, getting back to that, which is, you know, last around this time last year, it was, oh, Europe is going to freeze in the winter. There's going to be German grandmothers freezing in the street and dying of, you know, everything else because they're not going to be able to heat their homes. Um, and obviously it wasn't that bad. Now, at the same time, fast forward a year, German companies are struggling because their energy costs are higher. And sure. But, but now everybody else is like, oh, yeah, but gas is cheap. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, we, we can shut off another source from Russia. We can do this. We can do that. Everything's going to be fine. That complacency, I think, is going to come back to bite. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, I, I really um, underestimated the cynicism of market participants because you'll recall that last winter, going into last winter, gas was, you know, 10 bucks and, and, mm -hmm. and obviously higher in the LNG market, but it was quite expensive, obviously, in the US as well. And there was a view, like you said, that going into the winter, you know, Europe might freeze to death. And we had a once in a, or not once in 50 years, that's maybe not the right way of saying it, but the cold or the warmest winter in 50 years, heating demand was basically zero. And everyone's like, oh, well, you really got that wrong. I said, thank God that that happened. I mean, that was, you know, looking back on these like biblical stories, that was a gift from God. It allowed, you know, Western Europe to really make it through what would have been a very, very difficult spot. And now here we are, we find ourselves a year later. Um, the, it's a stock and a flows issue. And what I mean by that is, you know, European gas markets without Russia are in a really, really difficult spot. It's almost impossible to see how they can replace on a sustained long-term basis Russian gas flows. However, the stock of inventory that they hold right now is ample, and that's very different from last year. You know, we went into last, the beginning part of last year with inventories really far below average. Policymakers, to their credit, spent several months beefing up their gas inventories. Um, and then winter never came. And so those gas inventories are bloated now. 
Um, so there's not the same short-term urgency, but over the medium or longer term, I mean, you haven't addressed that issue at all. You know, it's very difficult to see how you can turn off Russian gas flows via Nord Stream and still have Europe come out with the energy that it needs. Um, and that issue hasn't been addressed. So, you know, this year they'll probably be okay. The urgency has gone a little. Thank God it is. Uh, however, I, I would I would urge, you know, policymakers and investors to use this this found time to think sensibly about setting up medium-term energy policies in Europe, which doesn't seem to be happening. No, I, I would tweak what you say just slightly in the sense that like Europe can find and import alternative sources, especially with LNG and especially as they build capacity. And the reason they can do that is because the Europeans are rich, especially relative to the other markets. The, the countries that really take it over barrel, like Pakistan, for example. Pakistan, LNG was part of its bright, glittering energy future. They came out a couple months ago and said, we can't afford natural gas. We're going back straight to coal. Like, forget natural sure. gas, we're gone. And, you know, your point about inflation, one of the things that has been bothering me lately, like, yes, U.S. CPI figures kind of middling. You can kind of, you know make any argument you want based on the data, but you, you can't deny that if you start looking around at, say, Nigeria, the Philippines, India, even Brazil, like inflation's coming back in those markets, and that was a leading indicator before with inflation. I think we're going to kind of get there as well. Um, you know, Germany set, set aside a lot of money to buy LNG and all this money to subsidize German industry last winter, and they didn't have to do anything, so maybe that, there's that complacency, but the money's still there. If the Germans decide we're going to pay for it, they're going to pay for it, but it's those other countries with hundreds of millions of people living in them. They can't survive if the Europeans are the ones gobbling up all the LNG on the spot market, and now we're talking about global Arab Spring type stuff. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with you, and, and, and you know, it's funny, I guess, to, to a certain extent, right? If you talk about the seaborne LNG market, let's just talk about that all as one giant market, right? Mm -hmm. So that giant market has ratcheted up now. Um, now you could make the, the case, well, will Chinese demand fall a little bit because they'll bring piped gas volumes from Russia? And you know, there's a possibility there. But basically, you've taken, uh, you, you've, you've increased European demand for gas outside of the pipes coming from Nord Stream, which are now offline. And, and I don't think that that's fully going to, going to be offset in, in, in a one-for-one -one basis. So, so that total sucking sound has gone up. And, and where is that going to come from? It become, becomes tricky. So I think that entire market tightens. Now, whether, you know, does that mean that Europe uses prices to bid volumes away from Asia? Yeah, I think that's probably right. But then again, you know, a a Asia historically, even though it's been a lot less affluent, it's marginal propensity to consume energy has been much higher and, and you've actually seen the opposite you know you've seen asia using price to bid volumes away from from the western world so it, it remains to be seen but it's a tight market and to some extent you know it reminds me a little bit of when people say to me you know sometimes we'll talk about the oil markets and and, and we'll say uh, and they'll say well don't you think that demand destruction is going to take place and so that's really bearish for crude and I said, well, I'll, 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 when you talk about demand destruction, I suppose that sounds a little scary and bearish, but why don't I frame it in a different context for you? What if I say you'll use price to ration scarce supply? They say, well, that sounds really bear, or really bullish. I said, well, that, that's demand destruction, right? <laughs> you'll use price as the mechanism to, to bring that scarce supply to its highest and best use. Um, so whether that means it goes to Europe or whether it goes to Asia, I don't know, but it's bullish regardless. Yeah, I mean, and China's another winner here because with Russia unable to sell to anybody else and China being really the only market that's going to soak up that up, you'll get more of that dynamic where China gets the cheap gas from Russia and builds more pipelines and everything else and then says, okay, this Australian LNG that we had, we're now going to sell that at a sort of a profit for ourselves. But um, Yeah, no, that's very possible. And, and I'll, just, I'll just say one thing about that. And, and this is kind of, you know, m more nuanced. You know, I, I, I tend to be more of a blunt instrument. I look for things <laughs> where, you know, you haven't, invested in the industry for 10 years and so supply is going to fall and prices will probably lift but you know one of the arguments last year was like could we get this really bullish scenario where china now gets preferential access to cheap materials and so demand goes up because they're now have cheaper you know input costs all things even all things equal price goes up and yet the rest of the world where you know our companies earn their earnings and stuff like that the price of, the, of, of, of copper, the price of uh, gas, the price of oil, you know, outside of that block goes up, you know, because you've taken supply off of the market. So, so it, it's more than a zero sum game. It actually results in, you know, better demand because the big consumer is able to 
get good cheap pricing and so they consume more than they would have otherwise while everyone else is forced to squabble over what's you know what's left it's a bit bit dramatic and stark but you know yeah and, and it reminds me of something rambling a bit but it's friday afternoon um it reminds me of something when you go back you know all the way to the fall of the uh soviet union that really prolonged uh, a downward push in commodity prices through the 1990s. And part of that was because you'd built up kind of a redundant second supply chain behind the Iron Curtain, which then mm -hmm. flooded out into the uh, into the Western world. And and that resulted, you know, in, in a in a oversupply situation that would not have otherwise existed if price signals had done what they were supposed to do and efficiently allocated capital. And so if you go back the other way, uh, you know, presumably that that's going to um, tighten the market quite a bit. Now, does that lower supply, increase demand? I don't know. It probably just makes the whole thing less efficient uh, and so tightens it that way, you know, increases the kind of, you know, supply chain that's needed uh, and increases yeah. demand that way. Um, sort of two other big picture questions and then I'll let you go. I, it is Friday and I actually find that rambling on Friday afternoon is when I have my best ideas. So maybe we'll arrive at one here or we'll, or we'll sound like idiots when we listen back to the podcast. I have no idea. But um, that global supply question is something I wanted to, to quiz you about because I share your bullishness on natural gas end of 23 into 2024. When you start looking at 25 and 26 though, you start looking at everything that Gutter and Canada and Australia is bringing online. Argentina is sitting there on sort of a shale revolution of its own. Uh, Guyana had a fairy tale discovery of oil on its own. When you start, you know, I haven't even mentioned Turkey and the Black Sea and natural gas and the Eastern Met. Like if we could get all of those things sorted together. I mean, it looks like there's an awful lot of supply coming. I've, I was wondering actually if Qatar wasn't going to Germany like last year and trying to lock in 20 year contracts because they know in two or three years the leverage won't be exactly the same. And now is the time to strike while the iron is hot. Um, what is your view on that global supply question? Because to me, it's the hardest one to really figure out, and I don't have a strong view one way or another, just this vague inkling that there seems to be a, an awful lot of supply coming online 25, 26. Is that true? Is it not? Well, again, like you said, it's a little bit tricky to take a look at, but what, one of the things that I think is, is even worse understood and probably more important is on the demand side. And so if there's one area that I find that the analysts have really gotten wrong, it's been the gas demand over the last 20, 25 years. And I presume they'll get it equally wrong for the next 10 or 15 years going forward. And, and so gas is an interesting fuel because it's subject to two forces that are a positive feedback loop that amplify growth. The first is that when a country gets richer, um, it starts to consume more energy. And then when a country gets richer, it prefers to have cleaner air and it, that tends to mean that it moves away from coal towards natural gas. And you know, when a country is poor, it burns coal. Why does it burn coal? Because coal is easy, it's cheap. And not only is it cheap on like a unit cost basis, but the infrastructure around it's very cheap. It's a solid, you can just kind of pour it on the ground. Um, you can leave it in these big stacks and, and what have you. And um, gas is really hard. You know, it's very, very energy undense, you know, in, in, its, in its natural form, right? It's just, uh, it's a gas, so it needs to be under pressure in pipelines or chilled and things like that. Then it becomes very energy dense. Um, <clears throat> and so it burns really clean, <clears throat> but it's very expensive. And when you're poor, you just can't, you simply can't afford it. And, and there, there's a debate that we have whether it's sort of like, you, you come to appreciate the virtues as you get to be wealthier, or you know the virtues are there, but it's just a nice to have, not a must have when you're, when you're a poor country and you need growth. And so what you end up with is you end up with countries like India or countries like China, where you know, whole generations don't see the blue sky. And you know, we talk about coal as being bad from, from the perspective of global warming, and I don't wanna you know, dismiss that or leave that by the side, but <clears throat> coal is really bad for, from a particulate matter perspective and from the fact that it blots out you know, the sun and, and you can tell when you burn coal, right? All those, um, if, if you watch The Crown when they had those big inversions mm -hmm. in London and the smogs and stuff, that was all from burning huge amounts of coal. <clears throat> and now, obviously you stop burning coal and that particulate matter goes away. So when you become richer, you know, your, your, your populace starts to really demand cleaner air, I suppose. Uh, just to put it really simply. And so you get this kind of double whammy where the pie grows and then the shift, the mix shift towards gas grows. And for whatever reason, people really seem, analysts really seem to miss that. And we've done pretty 
good job over the last 15 years of being on the forefront of you know having these models that try to take that into account. And what it tells you over and over and over again is that the demand for gas will outpace new LNG supply. And you know, I remember I started in 2007, and in 2007, everyone was really bearish on LNG. They felt that Qatar was going to bring online a whole new T5 or T6 of Q gas or whatever it was at the time, and that was going to be another you know five, six, seven Bs over the next however many years. And and event, you know, originally Chenier, which is the big LNG export terminal in uh, Sabine Pass, Texas, I was at the inauguration of that facility in 2007 or 2008, and they cut the ribbon. It was supposed to be an import terminal. And the reason it was supposed to be an import terminal, the, the logic went, we had all this storage capacity for gas, and you were going to have an excess supply of LNG. And so the price of LNG, which was, you know, it was it was like the I Love Lucy or whatever with the assembly line, you know, just the gas is going to keep coming. And in the shoulder season, no one would need it because we have so much LNG and gas would trade down to negative or zero. And the U.S. traders could buy it and put it in the in the storage for and then sell it at an arbitrage at higher prices later. How wrong was that? You know, so but that's how bearish people were. So not only did that never happen. And not only did demand for organic LNG you know, meet that, but the U.S. had the shales. Demand for U.S. imports went to zero, and we became the largest exporter in the whole world that nobody had in their balance sheets. And you know what? The LNG price still never broke its oil parity, right? Which is kind of the conventional indication that that market is in surplus. So a barrel of oil uh, it converted into LNG. You know, it was priced off of oil, which has always been scarce. So I would just caution medium-term bears that oftentimes there does seem to be this wall of LNG coming, but the demand is just shocking. And, and it comes from places, obviously like China and India, but it comes from places like Indonesia and Vietnam and Thailand and the Philippines. And, and then the, the, the other thing that people seem to get wrong over and over again, it comes from LNG export countries that start to see internal domestic demand grow faster than expected. And so the availability of that, ex of that, uh, of that uh, export volume goes away. Maybe that's going to be, maybe the U.S. will fall into that case, as you were saying before, right? That would certainly be what we were talking about before, where all of a sudden prices rise domestically and, and the powers that be say, well, look, I want to divert those flows internally and not export them. We saw that in Egypt. We saw that in Indonesia. Yeah, uh, that would be poetic. Um, I could talk to you for hours. I, I know we have to get going, so I'll, I'll ask one more self-serving question. We could do a whole episode on the question I'm just about to ask you, so feel free to just give it a short answer if you want. But I speak a lot. I speak to a lot of agricultural audiences in the Midwest. As, as a separate aside, have been long wheat here for a couple of months, and I'm beginning to think the market is, is going to stay bearish longer than I can stay liquid, but I'm not going to drone on that right about now. But um, one of the things I'm continually hearing in the U.S. Midwest especially is they're rejoicing for all these California bans on natural gas and the switch towards biofuels and renewable diesel and things like that because they think they're about to have a moment with soybeans that they had with ethanol in the 90s, which was the biggest transfer of wealth from you know urban to rural communities we've ever, we've ever seen before. And they think we're going to do this again, 4X, 5X, with renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. And they're all just, you know, glittering eyes at the prospect of soybeans and all these other oil seeds that might be used as part of the biofuels matrix supported by the government, things like that. Um, what would you tell a Midwestern farmer if he came to you and asked you, hey, should I plant more soybeans going forward because this renewable diesel SAF thing is for real? Or would you caution him about the future? Whew, that That's tricky. You know, Again, if you look at the energy efficiency of that plan, it's abysmal. You know, the worst yes. thing that we've ever done has been to um, grow food uh, for for uh, transportation fuel. You know, it, it's just it's a very inefficient way of um, generating usable uh, usable gasoline, uh, biodiesel, or what have you, uh, or ethanol. So. I wish that we just stopped doing that all around. I mean, the, the other thing is that it's not, it's not it's, it, people talk about it as like carbon neutral, but you know, that, that's an odd way of thinking about that as well. So um, does that mean we're not going to do it? No, I don't know. You know, if you're talking about, if you're talking about planting soybeans to try to take advantage of the next one, two, three years. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly seems as though these incentives that are being put in place are um, encouraging a lot of really, inefficient behavior. Uh, as far as whether we should be doing that in the long term, 
I think the answer is unequivocally no. I'm sure I'm going to anger a lot of your Midwestern listeners, but you know, it's it's just it's just not the way that we should be operating. There, there's, there's better ways to do it. You know, I'm, I'm really against electric vehicles because of how much energy and, and pollution it causes, for instance, to like burn down the rainforest in Indonesia to get it at a nickel laterite deposit yeah. and upgrade it to battery grade nickel, to burn coal, to make electricity, to get into an EV. I mean, I don't, I don't know, is this where we put our best and brightest minds is, is in following this stuff? But, you know, that probably gives ethanol a little bit of a run for its money in terms of net total efficiency. So, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, but, you know, these, these are the policies we've adopted. Well, to, to say nothing of the child slave labor in the DRC for the cobalt that we Horrible. need in the EVs, too. I'm, I'm with you there. The only, I guess I can just close on the thought that the, the one thing that it has done is, um, you know, if you look at a price of, of wheat compared to a price, the price of oil over 100 years, we drive wheat prices lower and lower and lower, and we expect our food to be cheap and things like that. And so if you don't give the farmers a win somewhere, there's not going to be any farmers. So, yes, like it's terrible energy policy, and it probably shouldn't happen, but it's better than not having any farms. And that's sort of the situation the U.S. I, is in, but you know. yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, gosh, what what a sorry state. But no, I look, I I, I agree with that. Um, and and you know, I think unfortunately, uh, farmers are going to have to contend here with with a potentially a period of um, of tougher growing conditions too. And my partner Lee has talked a lot about that. We could get him on to talk for like you said hours and hours. But you know, there's a lot of indications that that. Um, and, it, and it's not sort of the conventional climate change. If anything, I think that warming temperatures have actually really helped uh, crop conditions in the past 10 or 20 years as it has extended the growing season on both sides, you know, both reduced premature frosts and, uh, and, and you could get in and start planting earlier. Um, but, but there seems to be some signs that, that we're going to go through a period of more challenging growing conditions, including potentially a near-term you know, cooling period um, you know, aside from whatever you know, larger macro global warming trends, but just a shorter sunspot-dominated cooling period, which could result in really tough um, growing conditions for farmers. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a tough time to be a farmer. Well, on that optimistic note, uh, Adam, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to talk to you again soon, man. Cheers. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.